Good morning. Uh, today's scripture reading is going to come from Proverbs 1, 8 through 9, uh, 6, 20 through 26, and 20, verse 7. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland around your head and pendants for your neck. 6, 20 through 26 says, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are a way of life. To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. 27 says, The righteous who walks with his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Let's pray together. Father, life... um presents us lots of of challenges. It prevents us lots of things where answers don't come very easy, Lord. So we need your wisdom. We need your presence. We need you to to help us see a clear path in front of us, or at least to have the ability to trust you when things don't seem very clear. So Father, help us as we come to your word this morning. Help us to understand your wisdom. Help us to understand your perspectives on our lives and the decisions that face us every day, Father. But ultimately, Lord, we, help, we hope and pray that you would help us to see once again the wisdom of the gospel and the truth of what it means to know you as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So be with us now as we meditate on your word. Open our eyes to see you. In Christ's name, amen. I don't know if you uh, remember back, but gosh, it was a long time ago. It was probably when I was in high school or when I was in college. Uh, it was really popular to... Uh, there were these optical illusion pictures that were out there. I don't know if you remember this. But these were pictures that if you looked at them, they looked like kind of a chaotic uh, complexity uh, messiness. But if you stared at it long enough, and if you stared at the right spot, something would happen or trigger in your brain so that all of a sudden a very clear picture could emerge. It was incredibly frustrating because it seemed like everybody else could see the object, but I, for some reason, never could see it. I couldn't see past the the complexity and the mess to see the the clear picture that often uh, emerged for others. Well, I actually think life is the reverse of that. I think life sometimes from a distance or things from a distance seem very simple. Or they seem very cut and dry, but then once you're in the middle of it, once the the pressures of these things hit you day in and day out, what seemed so simple or what seemed so cut and dry is now incredibly complex. And we are left with this great need for wisdom on how to live this thing called life. Over the past several weeks, we've been looking at the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs really helps define for us what this thing called wisdom is all about. But instead of giving us a a very clear or codified definition of what wisdom is, it offers us pictures. It offers us illustrations of what wisdom looks like. 
If you're with us two weeks ago, you saw that, that, that the writer of Proverbs describes wisdom as a path. That there is a wise path that we can live uh, life on, or there is a very foolish path that we can live life on. He describes wisdom like a woman that we should chase after, but also there's this other woman named Folly that we tend to chase after as well. And last week when we looked at the book of Proverbs, we saw a character sketch of this tragic comedic character called the sluggard. And we looked at what it meant to to, uh, use wisdom or employ wisdom when it comes to how we work in life. But the topic that may be the most addressed in the entire book of Proverbs, if you read through the book, it comes up almost every five or so verses, talks about the importance and the significance of this thing that we call family. You know, one of the most basic institutions of society is the institution of the family. If you turn in their Bibles just a few pages from the very beginning in Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 2, you'll see that God instituted the family. He instituted it right after he created Adam and Eve. He said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and he shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You see, the family was the first and perhaps the most foundational institution of all society and of all culture. But of course, we all know that today we we live in a culture and we live in a society where the idea or the very definition of family is becoming more and more complex. There are massive efforts out there of people wanting to kind of redefine what the family is and what the roles in family are. I don't know if you've seen these commercials out there. I think it's by um, uh, Sprint, which uh, a, a cell phone carrier, and uh, they talk about what's called the the family plan or something like that. And they profile this family in the commercials where there's a there's a mom and a father who is a hamster and children that don't seem to go with the rest of the family. And it's it's a really kind of clever, interesting advertisement. But what it does is it just shows the complexity of this concept of the family that exists in our culture today. Some have argued that because of that, because of the apparent breakdown of this idea of the family, our culture has has really gone in a bad direction. And many people think that if we just had the, the picture of family like we used to in the good old days, then everything would be okay. And there is some truth to that, but whenever families have existed, there's always been complexity. I uh, often read National Geographic, and I read about uh, this month's issue about Nero, who was one of the Roman emperors back in the Roman age. And uh, he's known to be one of the most evil or wicked emperors that, that ever existed. So what this article tries to do is it says Nero really had a, had a bad rap. He really wasn't all that bad. Sure, he had both of his sisters killed. Uh, He butchered several of his wives and killed his mother, but he's really not all that bad of a guy. But what it made me realize is that, yes, we live in a culture now where, where family and family issues are complex, but that's really been no different all throughout human history. Families, whether they have the modern challenges of today or the ancient challenges, families have always been incredibly complex. One author said of the book of Proverbs, uh, this, this wisdom literature book, 
that it's one of the most practical books in all of the Bible. It's a book that's grounded in lives and problems of real people, and perhaps no issue in life creates a bigger need for wisdom than family issues. Rarely are there clear-cut or simple answers to family problems, whether it's choosing to marry someone or wondering how to parent a child. In all these circumstances, families provide us with the deep and deep need for wisdom. So let's look at a few things real quickly about what the book of Proverbs says about family and what it says about the need for wisdom when it comes to families. Proverbs has a lot to say about the relationship between husbands and wives and how to wisely select a wife or to wisely select a husband. If you remember, the book of Proverbs is a really intimate book. It's an intimate book about a father who's writing, passing on wisdom or writing things to his son who's about the age where he's going to start looking for a wife, where he's going to start having to make really strong wisdom decisions for his life. So it has a lot to say to him about the character and value of a good wife. It says in chapter 18, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. There's several passages where this father warns his son of what he calls the quarrelsome wife. A wife whose nagging is like the dripping of rainwater that drives you crazy. He warns his son about this type of woman. He says in chapter 31 that an excellent wife, who can find? She is more precious than jewels. And then it goes on in this beautiful kind of Hebrew acrostic poem to describe the virtues of a wife that this son should pursue after. One commentator said that she's a good administrator, a trader, a craftsman, a philanthropist, and a guide. So what this father wants to instill in his son, that you ought to choose wisely who you should marry. But it doesn't let men off the hook either. It talks about the character of a good husband. He's not a quarrelsome person. Chapter 26. Chapter 15, he recognizes the wisdom of his parents. He is a joy to his parents. He's someone who walks in integrity. Chapter 20. He's a kind person. He's a loving person. He's someone who's not hot-tempered, but somebody who's very slow to anger. And perhaps more emphasized than everything else, he is a faithful man. Chapter 20, verse 6 says, Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. Faithfulness is so important. And that's why most of the book talks a lot about the idea of sexual fidelity. He warns his young son of the adulterous woman out there countless times. He warns his young son about the temptation that he will no doubt face of adultery or of following the path of adultery. He says it leads to destruction, not just for the institution of the family, but also for the individual. But also he beautifully talks to his son about the foundation of a good marriage. And he says this idea of love or this concept of love has to be the most foundational element of any marriage. He says in chapter 15, better is a dinner of herbs where love is 
than a fattened ox with, and hatred with it. He says in chapter 5 that husbands are to always be intoxicated with the love of their wives. So Solomon has a lot to say to his son about the nature of choosing a spouse and the nature of wives and husbands and how they're supposed to relate to one another. But it also has a lot to say about the, the relationship that parents ought to have with their children as well. One commentator said, No nation has ever set the child at the center stage as did the Hebrew or Jewish nation. Indeed, the child was considered the most important person in the community. One of the rabbis said, The world exists only by the breath of school children, and the Jews believed that of all the people, the child was the very dearest to the heart of God. You see, the Jewish perspective or the Hebrew perspective that comes all the way from this book of Proverbs talks about how parents have this incredible opportunity or this incredible responsibility to communicate and exemplify the very faith to their own children. The good news is that sociologists still believe that the family or the parents have the greatest influence still on the heart and the life of a child. Many people worry that their kids are going to be swayed by technology or by kids at school or by some other influence that exists in their life, and often those things do happen. But still, the number one influence on the life of a child is his family and his parents. Family is what makes the biggest difference in the lives of our children. And the formation of our children, both practically and spiritually, has to be one of the highest priorities that parents and even the church has for its own existence. That's why Proverbs has a lot to say about it. It places a large emphasis on parents and their ability to work together in order to discipline a child. It talks about or it instructs parents to set a a positive example for their kids about walking in integrity. And echoing uh, the fifth commandment, it talks about instructing our children to honor and to obey their parents. All of scriptures, not just Proverbs, but even into the New Testament, all of scriptures place a tremendous value on nurturing the relationship that parents are to have to their children. So all that to say that Proverbs has a lot to say about the family and this institution of the family. What it shows us and what life often tells us is that families have this great capacity to bring great joy in life. But we also know from experience that often families have the opposite capacity. They also can become often the source of the greatest sadness that we have to deal with in our lives as well. Desmond Tutu said, you don't choose your family. They are God's gift to you and you are God's gift to them. Families can be a great institution of joy for each and every one of us, but they can also cause lots of pain and sadness as well. Cary Grant famously joked that uh, that family, that insanity runs in his family. He said it practically gallops in his family. Jay McInery said that the capacity for friendship is actually God's way of apologizing to us 
for our families. And F. F. Scott Fitzgerald wisely said about family quarrels, he said this, he said, family quarrels are bitter things. They don't go according to any rules. They're not like aches or wounds. They're more like splints in the skin that won't heal because there's not enough material. He keyed in on the fact that, yes, families can be a source of great joy, but they can also produce great sadness and the need for great wisdom. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, our, our first parents sinned all the way back in the book of Genesis. They, they introduced brokenness. They introduced corruption into their individual lives. But their sin also introduced corruption into this institution of the family that they were called to as well. In fact, they go on to have two sons. And and what happens in just the first chapters of the book of Genesis? One son ends up murdering the other son. And what it reminds us is that all families, no matter how great and healthy they may seem, all families bear the brokenness and the corruption of sin. We may call it dysfunctionality or, or dysfunctional families, but in the end, it all is related to this thing called sin that we not only bear as individuals, but our families need to contend with as well. One of the things I like to do from time to time is premarital counseling. I get the chance to do that a couple times a year with couples. And it's always fun to walk with them through this idea of the family, that, that they're not just getting married to fulfill one another's needs, but they're getting married to start a brand new family. And one of the things that we always talk about is that you may think your family is perfect, but it's not. And deep down, you know that to be true. In fact, your family is dysfunctional. And guess what? The spouse who you're marrying, her family's dysfunctional too. And guess what? You're both going to bring dysfunctionality to bear on your own family as you start. And you get to create new ways to mess up your kids. You see, all that is, is it's showing us, it's reminding us That even though families have this great capacity to bring joy, that they also bear the corruption of sin and difficulty. And we all know this is true from our experience. We can look at moments in our family that have provided incredible joy. And joy we can't even describe because of how wonderful it is. But we can also look at the brokenness that often comes from family life as well. And what it does is ultimately... Ultimately, it points us to the fact that family and the institution of family is designed to point us to something that is even greater. Because the gospel tells us that not only did God institute the nature of family, but the gospel tells us that God invites us to join in his family. Whenever God uses or wants to describe our relationship with him, He often uses familial terms. It's God recognizing that maybe in some ways the best way to describe his nature, the nature of his relationship with humanity is to use terms that we use about the family. In Isaiah chapter 54, God is actually described as a husband to his people. He's the perfect fulfillment of all the descriptions of husband that we read in the book of Proverbs. He, it says he marries himself or he covenants himself with his people. He is a husband who is kind, 
a husband who is slow to anger, a husband who is captured with love for his people. He doesn't just declare his steadfast love or his faithfulness to his people, but he also remains faithful to them to the very end. But more than, but more than that, God even uses the word father to describe how he relates to his people as well. He's the perfect fulfillment of the Father in the book of Proverbs. He disciplines us. He loves us. He cares for us. He knows what is best for us. And he commits himself to us as, his, as our Father. And the gospel tells us that we can be a part of his family. We can be a part of this perfect family. We have to deal, yes, with all the imperfections of what earthly families are all about, but ultimately he invites us to be a part of his perfect family. And his perfect family is the very thing that we most deeply long for in our souls. So maybe the most important question to ask ourselves is how do we become a part of his family? How do we become a part of this relationship where we can look at God and say he is our perfect husband. He is our perfect father who cares for us. And the gospel tells us that we become a part of it. That when we, that when we recognize that in order for us to be a part of his family. In order for even that opportunity to be possible. He had to send his very own son on our behalf. You know, I'm convinced that that one of the most difficult, that one of the most hands, hands down difficult things about this life is, is the challenge that some people have to face of losing a child. Of outliving a child or losing a child before, before that child reaches maturity or, or before the right time is for them to pass away. There's probably no greater pain or difficulty in life. But the scriptures tell us that when Jesus was baptized, a voice from heaven said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. It was in that moment, God the Father looking at God the Son who'd taken on skin and lived among us and said, saying, declaring to the world, this is my Son who I deeply love and who I am pleased with. It was the Father expressing His love and pleasure with His Son from all eternity. But what God also knew in that moment is that when he sent his son to this earth, he sent his son to this earth to die. And what the gospel story tells us is that at the cross, God the Father actually turned his back on God the Son because God the Son had chosen to bore our brokenness and our sin on the cross. He did it so that you and I could not just be estranged from God, but so that we could be enfolded into his family. He did it because he knew there would be no way for you and I to be able to earn the favor of the Father that we so deeply desire. He did it so that we could find our way into God's family through his pure gift of grace. And what the gospel tells us is when we receive his gift of grace... That you and I become sons and daughters of the King. 
And we receive all the blessings that come from being in God's perfect family. You know, Proverbs is really, as we've seen, it's all about the relationship of a father who's passing on wisdom to his son. And what you consistently see throughout the book is the father instructing his son on this path of life that leads to wisdom. And if that son just stays on that path of wisdom, then he will receive life. But the gospel tells us that God the Father sent his only begotten son on a path, knowing that that path would lead to his very death. And he walked that path faithfully so that you and I could experience life and life eternal through the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The book of, the book of Proverbs reminds us that, that all of us were created to live in the community that we call family. And it also tells us that it's never easy. It will provide instances where we need tremendous wisdom. But ultimately what Proverbs tells us is that we were created to be in another family. We were created to be in the family of God. And it is the very thing that we long for most in this life. So if you don't know what it's like to be in that family. If you've never experienced God who's your perfect husband. God who is your perfect father. Then receive his gift of grace. Receive Jesus Christ who is your maker. Who is your redeemer who is your husband, and ultimately your access to God the Father, your access to the family that your heart most deeply desires.